And sometimes, why? Why? Hey, folks. Welcome to And Sometimes Why. I'm your host, Rob Zabel. Let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. What we do here is we have conversations with all sorts of people about what it's like to be them, about how they think about things and how they feel about things. And I learn so much. And from what I'm hearing from listeners, they're learning a lot too. Or I should say, you're learning a lot too. You think you know someone and then you talk to them for an hour and it's incredible what you learn. So today we have Adam Warner on the show. He's a session drummer, and he's played with an enormous amount of people in all sorts of different styles. It's really interesting to hear his perspective on working for artists and working with producers and just what it's like to be a hired gun. But before we do that, I got to tell you about my experience earlier today. So I'm running around my apartment getting ready to, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm trying to do too many things, basically. And I pick up my goddamn phone and ostensibly I had something in mind to do that was important just seconds previously. And I proceeded to do a whole bunch of other unrelated things to the point where I totally lost what I'd originally meant to do. And I found myself in a moment of utter confusion trying to think of what it was I originally wanted to do. Ugh. So this is starting to happen to me routinely. And what I've realized is the only way I can stop myself, because what happens is you pick up your phone, you're going to do something. And of course, you've all been through this. You get whatever notification or there's an app open and you can't help but glance at it and then it sets you off and you're off doing a whole bunch of other things. And I got this from a podcast I was listening to. The guy who does the Dilbert comic his name's Scott Adams, and I heard him say on a podcast that he's got this approach where he he basically just repeats like a mantra to himself whatever he's originally set out to do. So this morning, this is what I was doing. I was going to email Dave. This is what I'm doing. I pick up my phone. I'm like, nope, nope, email Dave, email Dave, email Dave, email Dave. And I didn't stop saying it until I'd email Dave. That's what, that's where I'm at. That's what it's gotten to. And so I got to thinking a little more about this and I'm thinking we're all up against the best and brightest minds in the world. They're doing everything in their power to distract us at every moment of the day. You know, top engineers at Google and Facebook and Instagram, all of it. So no matter how disciplined you are, and I like to think of myself as a disciplined person, but it can be a losing battle just the way the phone's designed. And it's designed to do that, of course. So I know I'm not telling any of you anything that you haven't already thought about, but I just thought I'd share my moment of utter confusion because <laughs> it's exasperating sometimes. So I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm just sharing my <laughs> experience being alone, trying to get shit done and, you know, eventually trying to get this monologue done before we get to the conversation. So let's get to that. Adam Warner, He's a longtime friend of mine. We've worked a lot together. I've hired him a bunch to do different recording projects. He played on several of my solo albums. I love his drumming. He's one of my favorites. I just can't get enough of what he does. He's just such a natural. And there's a few points in the conversation. You hear me grasping for words, trying to describe what he does. On the one hand, it's so simple, but on the other, it's so sophisticated, and that's the beautiful thing. So let's do this. This is my conversation with Adam Warner. For people who don't know you, 
you're a top call drummer in Canada. You've played with who's who of Canadian stars and talent. Everyone from like Stephen Page to, you know, you've played the Sky Dome. You've done an enormous amount of stuff and you've you've played with every singer songwriter over the last 10 years in Toronto, you know, and everyone in between from white cowbell to hard rock bands to jazz bands to the Sinners Choir. You've done a ton of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, probably heard me joke about this, but I, my joke is always that I can teach you what I do to make a living in 15 minutes, but then you got to practice it for 15 years, right? <laughs> that's that's drumming in a nutshell. Drums, yeah. It's, yeah. What it is is stupid, but it's how it's not what it is necessarily. It's how you do it. I want to talk about that. To me... This is something that regular listeners in the general public might not know, but every musician knows this. The drummer is the most important part of the band. The drummer drives the bus. The drummer, almost every songwriter is in love with drummers, right? Just because you or, can't or, do that. Or the opposite. Well, right. But, <laughs> but everyone knows that if the drummer isn't great, mm -hmm. the chance of the, the group being great is slim. Yes. And, and that's just a given. And I think... All drummers know that too, which is why drummers <laughs> develop a, a particular kind of personality. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I find drummers have a, a sort of resigned... We're usually either the sober, grumpy guys, right. responsible. The cranky guy. Yeah, because we're responsible uh, or complete lunatics. <laughs> you know, I think it's uh, that sort of the... I don't know if we've ever... Have we talked about this? Like the different, different personality types... I was hoping I, we'd go here. Okay. Let's... Okay. Yeah, like I think different personality types go towards certain jobs or roles or roles in music is where you're going with it right well or not in, in general like so give me some of the so bass player <laughs> again responsible uh bass player in my experience over the years has always been the ladies man which you would really? not guess because you'd think oh it's the front person the fr you know because well, the... they got they got more time because they don't it doesn't matter to them if it's major or minor you know only I mean? one note it's, it's one gotta note be the time. right note one though. note at a time it's gotta be the right note but yeah yeah so they got time to think about other things and point at people in the audience or something band leaders singers <laughs> you don't you're like oh, I'm, I'm never gonna get work again yeah, yeah. you gotta watch what you say for sure but I think there's and and having been a singer songwriter myself putting myself in that position like it's a frightening place to be it really is yeah you got a lot of balls in the air like never mind just the the being good at music part there's all the rest of it that's oh my god overwhelming you're the typically. liaison between the band and the audience mm -hmm. and you're out there naked basically like yeah so it's i think in order to put yourself in that position you kind of have to at least want it but probably need it on a certain level I love that you brought it up and you framed it that way. People who stand on a stage have some kind of need that's not being fulfilled clearly. Like, I think that about myself all the time. I wonder, like, why do you got to do this? Why is it important? Well, you yeah, know? you know my joke, right? No, I don't. Which is that uh, nobody gets into this business because they're well-adjusted. Yeah. Yeah, right. you have to have some kind of, like, unfulfilled need. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, I don't know, I look at guys like you and Strongman as being, like, so you're talking about Steve Strong, man, yeah. uh, you, who you've played with a ton of times. I yeah. just want to make sure people know who we're yeah. talking about. But I see you guys as like you're interested in the game or you're interested in figuring this thing out and putting yourself out there. Like it's not just like 
your mom didn't give you enough hugs or something. Like it, it's, it's like. There's got to be some element of that though, to stand on a stage. I mean, Steve and I have talked about that specifically. <laughs> like why, why do we got to stand on a stage in front of people every, <laughs> and you need that continually, that reinforcement yeah. throughout your life to feel kind of. Which as humans, okay. humans, we probably, all of us need that. It's just not everybody has that outlet. Yeah. Maybe that's everyone. why everybody wants to be a rock star or whatever. Right. Like social media now is kind of that outlet to totally. some degree affirmation, right? Yeah. But maybe it's because of I met you. We met in like 2004 or five, I, something like that. Of this. Yeah. So we're probably both more or less on the wrong side of 30. Is that something you think about as we get older? So you've been playing music for a living for 20 years, 30, easy, 30, 30 years. 30 and, and, and getting older, you think, is not a good thing. No, I think I, I, I say that sort of as a joke, being that uh, probably our perceived utility to certain people is, you know what I mean? Like, like as far as, you know, being a young pop star, yeah. that's not going to Or happen. don't trust anybody over 30 kind of thing. Right. But no, I think I, think I say it jokingly. Like, I think it's the, the, the right side and that you have to figure something out at that point. So what's that been like for you as far as, I mean, we've talked about it, but getting older and, and figuring out do I want to keep doing this or what's the point? The thing that I've been going through, I mean, been going through probably since I started is why is it so important to try and get it out in the world? Why not just do your art for yourself as a hobby, essentially, and, you know, make money some other way. That seems to be the source, the pain point for musicians, right? <laughs> is, is, is not making enough money to just be comfortable that you're not always looking over your shoulder even if you have a, a fairly high perceived level of success, right? Like outwardly, you know, we have a lot of friends who play kind of high profile gigs, us among them who played lots, you know, you tell someone you're playing Massey Hall or the Sky Dome or whatever. And then the next night you're playing at the Cameron house for 15 people. Or worse. And, and it, right. And people don't, don't get that. That's, that's your life. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I always tell that You've probably heard me tell the story again. Like last time I played Massey Hall, I played Massey Hall and McDonald's in Etobicoke in the same week <laughs> for roughly the same money. <laughs> right. That's the thing that general public doesn't get is no. just because you're playing Massey Hall doesn't mean you're making a ton of dough. To take it even further, I was making that joke with, uh, do you know Michelle Joseph? Great drummer. One of my heroes. But she was telling me this story years ago uh, when she was playing with Sharon Lawson Bram and they were, uh -huh. they were playing at uh, Carnegie Hall. Right. They were, so they were there for a couple nights, and she heard this radio interview with uh, Phil Collins. Okay. And the the person was asking him, like, you know, is it true, you know, you're only as good as your last gig? And he was like, no, no, no. You're only as good as your next gig. Right. And her next gig was playing the weekend at Grossman's. <laughs> Grossman's a tiny club in Toronto. Oh, the best. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's great. But, I mean, it's you're, you're in the trenches there. Yeah, man. yeah. Yeah, which is... I love, but oh, yeah, no. it's perspective. If if you're, you can't survive doing this kind of life if if you've got too much hanging on optics, right? Yeah, I I don't know. Getting back to the thing about whether why we do it for a living, I don't know. I guess it's it, it's our identity. Like people are always like, "Oh, you chose this or whatever. You're doing what you love," and it's like, "No, I'm not." And like, "No, I didn't choose this. I don't always love it. I love it more these days than I." than I did 20 years ago. But it's a love-hate throughout, oh. throughout your life. I, I can relate. I can totally relate. Yeah. And, and the musicians I've had these conversations with for this podcast, that's a th like everyone feels like that. But I guess, I mean, in regular life, people feel like that about their jobs. They don't love their jobs every day. But I guess maybe that's the myth, 
you know, when you're a kid and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to be a musician and that's going to get me out of the regular job life and I'm going to love every day of my life. Yeah. And then you realize it's not it. Well, it, yeah, A, it's not it. I mean, I think as soon as you do it for a living, your relationship to it changes. Yeah. Right. And so there's a flipping burgers aspect to whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. So even if you're playing big stages and playing concert halls, like it's still a job. It's still, it's not, I mean, I think there's more bad ideas about art and music than anything. Yeah. It's probably, I, I think that when I, when I talk to younger people and when I think about teaching someone or mentoring someone, that seems to be a really important part of it is to just get your head straight about what your expectations are, right? I think that would go a long way to reducing yeah. suffering in people over their, you know, just improving mental health, yeah. right? Because musicians are so clinically depressed almost. Yeah. Everybody I know. Yeah. Well, I'm t I, uh, so I'm teaching a half course up at Seneca College, which is amazing. And these young kids, all of a sudden, like, I'm the old guy teaching them kind right. of thing. And like, you know, I don't, I'm not, I certainly don't want to burst any bubbles, but I also want to sort of let them know that whatever it is you think this is, is not what it is. Right. You know, and so just protect your relationship with music. Right. You know, because I mean, I, I know for myself, like I got off in the weeds and didn't love it. When you don't have that, then you don't love anything. Yeah. Sort of thing. So, and my other thing with them is like, if you don't get anything else from my class, just know that you need to go get a therapist. Everybody needs to talk to somebody at some point, and and certainly at that age. Wow, you know, that's that's what you're teaching at Seneca. That's <laughs> profound. <laughs> no, but that's that's so important. I mean, as yeah. you get older, you start to realize that the nuts and bolts of the minutia of music is not necessarily what's going to make you a better oh, musician no. or a better person out in the world. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this. You said you have a mentor in New Orleans. No, I, I said I got to like meet one of my heroes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The thing that stuck with me, the reason I brought that up is because last time we talked about it, you said, so this is one of your musical heroes and yeah. you got a chance to, to talk to him at length, but you didn't talk about music at all. No. That's what you said. Yeah. So what, what did you talk about? Oh my, wow. We went, we went deep. We went into like, I guess God or religion or spirituality and like family. Right. That sort of, like just human stuff. Yeah. Right. Music, we talked like for like a split second. It was just sort of like the gateway into the conversation, right. I guess. But I, I sort of, I said to him, I just said, it's not often that I get to thank somebody who had such a profound influence on my life from a young age. But I said like the music part, whatever, I can figure that out. Yeah. But, you know, I, but I, I was like, I'd just love to talk to you. That's wisdom of age. I mean, that's the reason I brought that up is because what you said about your Seneca class, right? Is, is here you are telling them nuggets of wisdom. Yeah. I wonder whether I would have been able to see that wisdom for what it is if I was, you know, 20 years old hearing you say that as a teacher. Probably not. No, <laughs> for sure. I actually was talking with one of the students after class the other day. He was 22. And I was like, I'm pushing 46. I said, in your position, I would not, probably anything coming out of my mouth would be like, shut up. What do you know? And I don't know that there's any, I don't know that there's any way around that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think as a parent now, I would like to be able to shield my kid from going through the terror that I did as a child and then as an adolescent and a young yeah. adult. Um, but I don't know that you can. Because there's, you haven't been around the, the mountain enough times to kind of see patterns and stuff. So everything is very real because it's for the first time. And Yeah, and the other thing is 
in my experience, there's no way to share that information with someone, like as an older person to a younger person, in a way that's not potentially going to push them the opposite way. Totally. Almost certainly. So that's the yeah. way it was with me. Any older person when I was in my teens and 20s that told me anything, I, it would have pushed me the other way almost for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you do, right? It was funny. I was on my way over here and I was thinking about that um, Josh Ritter lyric. I, I traded all my innocence I ever had for hesitation. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that's so heavy. You know what I mean? But that's that's what being on the wrong side of 30 or 40 it's not like we, we, I mean, we learn more, but we learn more about what we don't know. And therefore. Yeah. I feel so much like that. Like when I was younger, I just did stuff. I just throw myself headlong into whatever it was. And I, you know, doing a lot of the stuff now, if I had to do it all over again, I would never do it because I'd be too hesitant because I'd think it through and I'd go, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. I, I don't know. How's this going to play out? Both of us, what so, we, what we've done in our life, like from this vantage point, like, would I do that again? No, <laughs> no, like no way in hell. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I wouldn't want to, you know. You wouldn't want your, your kid to, oh. to experience that either. No. I mean, at the same time, it's made me who I am and I wouldn't trade in a way I wouldn't trade those experiences, but like those were hard years. Yeah. You know, and I paid for them and, and I continue to pay for them. So is there anything specific uh, that you're comfortable talking about? I mean, you say terror. That's Oh, as a child? Yeah, yeah, as a child, yeah. Oh yeah, I was not I was not raised to have self-esteem. <laughs> right. My father had like a horrific life, so uh that got sort of passed on or whatever, but I think just the regular stuff of being a kid and just not knowing how to negotiate. Yeah the world you know you just don't have the tools no and it's then like you're forced to deal with real stuff yeah well i mean you know people always say like oh what i wouldn't give to be 20 again like no you wouldn't that was terrifying like you want to go back and be 20 knowing what you know now yeah exactly but that's not how it works so you said therapy what do you get out of therapy because that's something i've been hesitant to do but so many people i know really think therapy is so valuable, including people in my family, everything. It's like having a referee <laughs> or have somebody have an independent person like check you on stuff. And you don't want to wear your friends out with that kind of shit. Well, some of them are probably good at helping you with that stuff, but probably a lot of them aren't as knowledgeable about it as you need. Or some people are going to tell you what's what. Some of your friends. Yeah. And some are going to like minimize it or they're going to side with you or whatever. Or it'll just be part of the problem. Yeah. It's like going to a teacher. Right. Right? Like you take lessons and they go like, why is your hand doing that? Like, Yeah. Why are you slouching? Why are you doing yeah. this? This is, this is hurting you. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's follow that thread. You're still working on your drumming. Last time we talked, you were taking lessons even at an advanced age. If we, you know what I you mean? You have to. See, that's, that says so much about you because not everyone in every space does that continuous learning and continues pushing themselves. So why is that important to you? Because, you know, you're good enough. I'm yeah. joking, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Like you that's, clearly... that's exactly it, is I'm like, I'm good enough, but I'm not <laughs> like, I mean, in my case, I mean, this is sort of one of the other bad ideas about music. Like I had a lot of natural talent. Right. Which most people think, well, that's great, but it's actually a curse. Right. You know, because you can coast, you can be lazy and you can get away with murder. And I have, and I got caught years ago and and that's why I sort of ended up getting back into studying. But 
So can we talk about that? So I'd love to get into the weeds a little bit. <laughs> All right. So you're talking about getting caught and having to go back to the woodshed. Yeah. That's kind of a profound realization. First of all, to have the courage to admit, because I've been through that a lot of times as a singer, or as a not so much as a guitar player, but I've got so much identity wrapped up in this being a singer or being a musician that it's sometimes hard to admit that you've got to, you know, oh, go yeah. back to the foundation and, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not working. That's, yeah, my whole life is it's not working. Right. So what did you do? Like, what happened to get your head to that space? And then what did you do about it once you were there? Uh, I had a sort of a bad relationship with drums and didn't really have an interest in them. And then got into, in my early to mid-20s, I guess, I taught myself to play guitar and write and sing and sort of then thought, maybe I want to be a singer-songwriter. And so I just kind of focused on that for a few years and just I was playing drums for a living Mm -hmm. But I just kind of wasn't doing the work and letting it slide. And at the time, I was just like, oh, I'm bored with drums or whatever. But really, I was just bored with what I can do. Right. Uh, and yeah, I just got the classic thing. I got in a studio situation where I wasn't able to do what I... What was required? Yeah, although in this situation, it was not necessarily my fault. It's a longer story, but... Um, but that to me is so interesting. Like the dynamics, like, you know, I'm not talking about naming names, yeah, yeah. but the like... What was happening that was so hard to deal with? As a drummer, you get... I mean, probably the reason that we're all ornery is just because of... If there's anything goes wrong, we're generally... The person you look at is the The drummer. producer looks to the drummer yeah. and like, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And that was sort of what was happening. I mean, it was there was all kinds of mitigating circumstances. Like, I don't know if I ever told you this, I was really injured. I was in a bad bike accident. Right, I remember that. And, you got and, uh, door prized, right? Door prized and then hit by another car on the way down. Oh, God. So I could barely walk for like a year and a half, but kind of had to hide it to work. Right. Uh, and make a living. So that was in the middle of that. On top of everything else, I was just like, I was just trying to hold on. And I think every drummer has at least one of these experiences mm -hmm. to tell. Like, I don't think this is necessarily a thing that guitar players go through. But every drummer has like at least one story of being in the studio and getting the blame or not or not cutting it or whatever. Like mm -hmm. I remember my first session like almost being in tears because I didn't know I rented a set of drums. I didn't have drums here at the time, not knowing anything about how like factory heads worked and that you couldn't, there's no way you could get them in tune or right. whatever. And just like, and not knowing enough about duct tape right. to like not be able to kind of make a serviceable sound. And like, I'm just going to tell this person to just... You don't have to pay me. Oh, that'd be hard, especially when you're young. It's your first session. God. That's... First session in Toronto, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, I, I barely recorded before then. But sometimes you're just not the guy. Right. Yeah. And to put this in perspective for people who've never been in a studio, the way people record, you're trying to get the drum track. But a lot of the time you're in an expensive studio and you've got a bunch of musicians and a producer behind the glass waiting, all looking at you. And... All the other musicians are playing, but everyone knows you'll probably replace their parts, but you're not going to replace the drums. So it's all on you. It's all on you. And I mean, sometimes I've been in situations with live musicians where they're like, well, I'm not being kept. So they're not necessarily doing me any favors. Right. They're I mean, not. You, and, and you get that oh, all these the days time. with scratch tracks where people like make scratch tracks and it's like, well, that's not really in time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got to play with it and it's like everything is against you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're the frame. Like, that's the thing. As a, as a drummer, you're creating the frame. So you went back 
and you started taking lessons and you started woodshedding. Yeah, I mean, leading up to that, including a week before, I had a couple friends, Sly Juhas, great drummer. Watch your hands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Drum on things, man. <laughs> you're tapping, you're tapping on the table. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I was doing some some gigs with the Creaking Tree String Quartet, did mm-hmm. some electric shows, and Sly Juhas and I were uh, trading off on drums and percussion. He was telling about his teacher, Jim Blackley, and, and then like a week before I went in the studio, I, I think I had lunch with uh, my friend Mark Pizer, who's genius drummer and he was saying like you got you really gotta go see jam or whatever so so anyway i got caught in the studio thing and first thing i did was i called those guys and like give me his number right and i got it and i got in on the strength of because they were like two of his star students right so this Um, is a a teacher that you can't just call and get a lesson you've got to be recommended highly and yeah that's i love that so i got going to see yoda or something yeah totally so i got in on the strength of on the strength of their uh their abilities rather than mine but um yeah and and i was able to kind of get in the rotation so what kind of stuff do you work on i just wanted to frame it like you know here you are already working at a high level as a pro drummer, and then you go back to the woodshed, and what kind of stuff do you focus on? How do you hold on to your drumsticks? How do you strike a cymbal? <laughs> like the Just most basic, most basic, basic, basic. I remember you blowing my mind with this because I mean, I've worked on guitar playing my whole life, but it still blows my mind to see somebody like you working on the most basic fundamental things, like the exercise you showed me about just playing quarter notes at 40 BPM. Yeah. And and just for people who aren't musicians, that's really slow. So you get a metronome and you play as slow as you can imagine. And it seems like the most boring thing in the world to do. But that exercise can really improve you dramatically. I studied, uh, when I was in college, I got studied with Roger Flock mm-hmm. for uh, for a semester, who is, who is, I would legitimately, is, is my mentor mm-hmm. and who I owe my life to. Like, I would be dead or in jail if it was not for that man. But that's what he had me do. He had me play quarter notes on a cymbal at 40 beers per minute right. for, I for feel six like, months. We, how slow was that? Can you Can you tap that out now? It's not that slow. It's pretty slow to so for the average person out there, yeah. imagine doing that for I don't know fifteen minutes in a row, or what, how long were you doing it? You know, how, however long you're practicing and just playing, yeah, those snaps. Doing it's like a meditation, right? Yeah, but that was the greatest gift anybody had ever given me. It's not glamorous. No, I love that. You know, the age I am now, I love that so much. But you know, as a younger person, it's all about like. How do we go fast, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look at, I remember years ago hearing about, like, Tony Bennett still takes a vocal lesson every week. Right, right. Like, yeah. Tony Bennett. That, to me, is inspiring. And so I'm asking these questions just to kind of illuminate yeah. these ideas. But, I mean, I understand this stuff really well. That's why I want to get it out in the world. Yeah. It's so important, right? Well, it's a moving target, right? Yeah. Like, there's this this Steve Gadd video where, instructionally, Steve Gadd's a legendary drummer, where... He's talking about sort of going between like regular time and double time or whatever. And, and the interviewer is like, at what point does this just kind of happen? And he's like, no, no, you, you never, it doesn't ever happen. Like you get more familiar with it and you know how to make the transitions easier. It's never like autopilot, like you don't think about this. Yeah, I remember one of my drummer friends, they talked to what somebody famous about 
are you always counting? Are you always subdividing? Like, when does that stop? And you can just enjoy playing drums. And he goes, well, it doesn't. I'm always like, what do you mean? You stop paying attention? <laughs> when do you stop working? Yeah. And you're like, uh, no, you don't stop working. Yeah. And that's why, well, and for me, the reason that I'm, I had to go back and do it was because of, I had the opposite thing and that I had enough natural talent that I didn't think about those things. And you could just kind of. Good enough. Right. But at a certain point, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Yeah. So I wanted to get back to, you're talking about, what's his name? Jim Flock? Oh, uh, Roger Flock? Roger Flock. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What you just said about him was pretty profound. You said you'd be dead or in jail if it weren't for him. Oh, yeah. What did he say to you? He just kind of like, A, he cared. Yeah. Which is like. And how old were you at the time? 19, 19, 20. And you're a student at, where, where was it? Oh, jeez. Why do you have to bring that into this? Well, what? <laughs> okay. We don't talk about this. I don't even know where Humber College is. Okay. Um. Got but it. Yes. But yes, I was there. So for people who aren't musicians, there's a stigma about being a Humber graduate. <laughs> As a musician, it's inside baseball shit. We don't need to go any further. I was the anti-Humber guy there. The reason that has a stigma was because at one point it was like, it was the old guard. Right. And it was people who had never played a gig in their life or if they had, it was 30 years previous. Right. And it was sort of very like narrow focus on bebop and, right. and not... Yeah. That's the joke we used to make in rock bands. It's like someone who was, you know, if you're trying to hire a bass player or whatever, yeah. you'd be like, they went to Humber, you know, okay, counting the song. Okay, one, tweet up, <laughs> tweet up. How's it going? That, that's the way they went. You'd go, okay, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was lucky in that I'd gigged already. I, and I was gigging. So, like, I knew what was offside and what wasn't. Right. But there were some great people there who were, like. Yeah. And so he cared. He cared. Oh, man. I have so much to say. I still go to him. Go and have lunch or whatever. I'll go have a lesson. I'll go have a lesson. Like I had a lesson with him, I think, last year or the year before. Like, how do I set up my drums? <laughs> right? Going right back to basic kind of ergonomic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's his thing. Like, that's his special talent is that he understands the ergonomics and the kinesthetic things about this better than I think anybody. So I go to him and try to have him straighten me out from time to time and I mean he just laughs at me but um kind of reset yeah and he laughs at you why because he thinks you don't need it or no 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 <laughs> he's no. like no 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh no no I mean uh just because I'm like oh my god you showed this to me 25 years ago right you know I've been given the information but but he has this magical talent when I was in school he could size you up he would look at somebody and he could immediately figure out what is your biggest weakness. And then he would have you do that in front of the class, fall on your face in front of everybody, and somehow simultaneously make fun of you mercilessly while lifting you up and raising you up. You got to have the lifting you up part. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But like he was able, like it was, it's this amazing gift. And he treated everybody differently. I had another good friend of mine uh, here in town, Andrew McMullen, who's an awesome drummer. And Roger was like merciless with him on like minutia. And he never did that with me. I think he knew. Right. He knew it wasn't going to work. He knew it wasn't going to work. He knew that I knew <laughs> that, that I was when I was messing up. And you didn't need someone he didn't, on your back to that degree because it would have well, been and, counterproductive. And Andrew did not either. Right. But, but like... He just kept getting more and more awesome. Whereas for me, 
I was so volatile at that time. I was an angry young man and a bunch of my family was dying at the time. So it was like it was like a, a crazy time. But he knew that he didn't have to push me and he knew that when I was faking it to make it that I knew that 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 was going on. Yeah. It's funny. My last year I had him for a lesson and we didn't pick up sticks the entire. So this is the theme with transformative experiences for you, right? Like the guy you saw in New Orleans, your hero, you didn't, didn't talk about music. Here you didn't pick up sticks. Right? No, I mean, he basically just like talked me off a ledge for a year because I was just so angry at the experience of being at school and what that was, what that meant to me. Or... A great teacher. That changed your life, like you said. Oh, yeah. What do you think of switching gears here? I want to lavish you with love. I love, I love, I'm such a fan of your drumming. And clearly, over the years, you've played on so many things that I've been involved with, both on my solo records and a lot of records I've produced. And thinking about talking to you, this is the kind of thing you don't have a chance in regular life or regular working life as a musician just to have this kind of conversation go, dude, you know, I, I really love you as a person and what you do so much. And I can't imagine, <laughs> he's looking around, he's gesticulating. I can't imagine all that music made without you as a vital part of it. And that goes back to talking about how important drums are in the, the architecture of live music or recorded music. You just can't do something great without a great drummer. And so I've got a list of tunes that we've worked on. Like, for instance... Like, we're in the service industry. You know that. <laughs> or we're supposed to be. Like, that's what it comes down to. Like, to me, it's so... I guess the thing I'm struggling with to express here is to try and express to someone who hasn't been involved as intimately as we have, I'm trying to put my finger on what it is that you do that does it for me to that extent. And I don't know I could explain to someone. It's just vibe. You're just a vibe machine, right? Okay, so this track on Steve Strongman's album, Let Me Prove It To You, What I Believe. Do you remember playing on that track? Is that the one where we disagree about where one is? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> so it's this really straight-ahead kind of Led Zeppelin blues kind of groove. And I can't imagine a better way of playing that, but I could never tell someone to play what you did. What could you do to explain it? It's just a feeling and an understanding, right? We're just supposed to play what you're supposed to play. And so people listen to that and go, well, yeah, it sounds great. But like, how do you get there? It's this mystery to me, that's, which is why it's so important. And I'm just fumbling on my words now because I guess that's the whole thing any of us is trying to get to is this, this feeling of, oh, well, it's, you could get a hundred different drummers to play that groove and it's never going to sound just like that, mm. right? That's magic. It's a fingerprint. Right, a fingerprint. I, I can't sing like you. I yeah. want to. I want Who to. would want to? Ugh. Are you kidding? I could turn this back around and say like, that's, I still remember the first time I heard you. I heard you sound checking. No. That's not what we're here for, Adam. Come on. <laughs> I remember standing at the bar. I was playing with my dear friend, Dean Druyard. Right. And I remember, like, standing at the bar and then hearing you, like, open your mouth singing and, like, the two of us just turning around being like, who the hell is that? Huh. I don't feel like that about my singing. Yeah, I don't feel that way about my drumming. 
Um, that's a big compliment, but I want to go back to that strongman track. So, so then you've got this straight ahead, amazing magic groove. And then, so as a producer, I've done many dozens of records and one of the biggest decisions because drums are so important is who's going to play drums on the track. Right. And so I love working with you because you consistently surprise me. It kind of changed the way I produce working with groups because you know, when I was younger, I used to go into a session with something in mind. I thought that was my job. Mm -hmm. My job is I got to have this thing in mind. I have to have a vision for how it's going to sound because that's why people are hiring me and I have to kind of exert my will on it. And what you taught me was it's better to stay open because you got to leave room for surprises, right? And so that kind of, at the same time now, you got to have a vision, but you got to leave some room for the magic, right? Yeah. And so that tune is a perfect example of that, especially the bridge, where it's it's this, this swung blues feel, and then all of a sudden you start playing like a straight groove, kind of. I don't know how to describe it. How would you describe it? That was my tribute to Stephen Hodges, who's Mavis Staples' drummer. Played with Tom Waits for many years. Right. Who I've got to know a, a little bit and is one of my heroes. And there's a there's a there's an old Staples singer's tune that Mavis does on one of her solo albums where he plays like, you know, in between the straight and the swung. But he does it like through the whole tune and it's just unbelievable. And it, there's so much tension once you've yeah. set up this expectation of this swung feel throughout the whole song. And then you start playing that in-between feel, and it just turns you on your head. And everybody in the room was like, what is he doing? Yeah, so the first like an... time you hear it, you go, that's not right. And then you hear it again, and you go, I just want to keep listening to that. It's <laughs> it's just like it, placement, skip beat placement, or whatever you want to call it. It can be sort of another dynamic or another, yeah. or another gear. So that's, I mean, when that happened, I was like, yeah, it kind of needs to straighten up a little bit just to kind of give it that a little more tension and a little more... To remind motion. people, something's happening here, yeah. right? Okay, another song that's a magic moment that I felt like I was happy to be in the room for was that time on Sean Pynchon's first record on the tune High Heeled Shoes. Oh it was God. you and Sean and Mark McIntyre in the room live. And there's this section where we kind of, we didn't talk about it much. We just said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to slow the tune down to like beyond half time no, as though it falls apart, right? No, it didn't even do that. We went halftime. Okay. I want to say all hail Mark McIntyre right here. Yeah, like, right. This was, I think this was all him. When I get to this little solo break, it would go like halftime. Yeah. And he'd slow down just to like a hair. Yeah. And we would catch it. But for some reason on this one take, it kind of, I don't even know what happened. It's just like a bus drove past us. But the thing was, was that McIntyre and I, neither of us flinched. We didn't panic. And you you gradually sped up, almost like the tape speeding up. Like, yeah. It was totally natural and in sync. Yeah. And yeah. to me, that was one of the most magical <laughs> moments of my musical career. Everything's wrong. Right. Quote unquote. But it's it was perfect. Right. And that's what that's what can happen if you listen to each other. Yeah. Right. Um, another track I wanted to talk about was on my solo record, uh, forget the name of it, Life and Limb. 
uh, that cold hard sell, that groove that you played on that, which is kick and clapping. Yeah. There's another example of me, I had an idea in mind and I want it to sound a certain way. And then you just started clapping. And that was at a time before like claps are on everything right now. Mm. And that was like 2007 or whatever. And it, claps weren't all over every track you heard. And this was just you in the room, kick, clap, kick, clap. <laughs> But, I mean, it changed the whole track. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like a brawny or stomp yeah. kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, But, it like, my, I, my idea is always to, like, what does the music need? That's what you're supposed to do. But, but often, what I get with you is it's always surprising because sometimes, you know, for some people, it's like, what does the music need? And then you go to something cliched, maybe, because that's yeah. what you've heard your whole life. But you always surprise me, and that's a great example. Wow. Because uh, I listen to Braun, you're a stomp. I don't think there's a clap. I think it's just kick hi-hat. Yeah. And the clap changes everything. I can't remember. It doesn't matter anyway. No, but yeah, that just felt like an honest response to what I was hearing. And right. and I want to say, like, I'm able to do that because of I have people in charge who I trust. Right. Right? I, rem I remember setting up for that session, and it was actually, that was the first session after the disastrous session. That it really was? I didn't realize that. Yeah. And I remember I was setting up, and I, re and I didn't realize it until I was setting up, and I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't been in a studio since then. But it was... Oh. Yeah. And it didn't feel like that to me. Like, my memory of you... Because was, it was you and Strongman, and S Strongman being Strongman, just being like, yeah! You're just what, making you know? people feel comfortable, yeah, right? that it was like, okay, we can just play music, and I can just do... Because my memory of you is, you're confident. You're like, I'm taking control of this. This is going to go in a different direction than what we just talked about, and you guys are going to be okay with it. And we're, we're like, yeah, because you got to sell. <laughs> That's a, a lot of... you got to sell the idea. I think as a accompanist, you have to have a pretty wide, you have to have a big bag to grab from. Yeah, because you've been in so many different situations with so many different people kind of in charge that you're you're trying to accommodate, right? Yeah, and I've just, I've played so many different kinds of music. One of the things I was curious to ask you, me as a producer, I'm so curious, you've worked with so many other producers and they, there must be such a range of styles. Yeah. Well, I, w I would just sort of, in front of that, I, I would just say that the thing about being a sideman is that you get to work with so many different people in so many different situations, and you get to see how they conduct every aspect of what they do, whether it's songwriting, whether it's recording, whether it's how they deal with audience members, how they run their business, mm -hmm. how they do all this thing. So the advantage or disadvantage, if it's frustrating to you, is that you get to see all these different ways of doing things and so that you can be like, oh, I like how that person does that. Um, that part, not so much, but right. this person is really good at this, right? So you get to draw from all kinds of different things. Whereas if you're, say, a singer-songwriter or somebody who just kind of does their own thing. You're always driving your own bus and you don't get that wealth of experience, right? Which is why I'm asking the question. Yeah, and, you th and then you think that the way you do things is the way things are done. So that's kind of the advantage of being a fly on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you give me some specific examples of wisdom that you've taken from all these different uh, experiences? Yeah. I mean, I'll, the first great producer I worked with was Brent Bodrug. Did you ever know him? No, I didn't. He was, um, he did, uh, I think he was part of that Queen Street scene back in the day. I did this record with a, a friend of mine and had it just been left to, up to us, it would have been like a, not punk, but like, I don't know, it just would have been a straight ahead punky rock record yeah. and he was the first guy i worked with which i think i've probably based everything off since then 
So we would we would come in and we play the song and it'd be like, I don't know, just like a whatever rock tune. And he'd be like, I'm hearing like the police on this. Or like, or I'm hearing like Blue Rodeo. Like, or Smokey Robinson or something like that. And you'd just be like, I just remember being like, what are you talking about? What are you hearing? And be, and at first being like, huh? Like, but But what he was able to do was he was able to kind of tease out, try this kind of thing. And you do that. And then you would kind of get your foot in the door just a little bit where you'd be like, oh, I can kind of hear what you're doing, what you're, right. what you're hearing. And so he wasn't afraid to take it way out in left field no. from the original no. idea, which that was the mind-blowing bit about it. That was the first mind-blowing thing about it. The second was, was that, so he'd be like, try this. And you try that and you'd be like, well, I think if I did this, it'd be better. And he'd be like, yes. And so he was not... He was not precious about his own ideas, and he was not, um, if you had a better idea or took it further, mm -hmm. he wasn't in any way threatened by that. That's such an important I was mind-blowing. Because quality. then, within 10 minutes, you could kind of like, oh, okay, now we're going in a direction. And you're collaborating, and it, it, no one's afraid no. to throw any idea no, out. No, no. So that, that was like, I haven't worked with him in a while, but I got to work with him a few years ago doing a live thing, and I was like, look... Everything I do is based on that experience of your generosity and your ability to kind of see further into the thing. It's, it's a fine balance, eh? Because on the one hand, you want someone who's got a clear idea of what we're all trying to do. But on the other hand, you've got to leave room for the best idea. Yeah. Les Cooper. Yeah, I love his productions, man. Oh, my He's gosh. so good. Genius. Like, same thing. He was the guy who taught me that the song has to be bulletproof and that it's, right. that it's the producer's job. To make sure the song's bulletproof, yeah. whatever it takes. Because I, as a drummer, like, because you're controlling the frame, you're controlling the, the energy. If it's got too many verses, you can't do your job properly. You can't do your or job. Or if there's an extra two bars here that aren't supposed to be there. But all that happens before you get into the room, right? Not necessarily, but it should. Or, right. or it, will be, it will become apparent. But again, sort of not being precious about... Just being selfless to like, we want to make this song the best we can. Yeah. Unfortunately, that sets the producer up, I think, to be in a, I don't know how you feel about this, but the producer is kind of almost in like, uh, puts you in a difficult position because your job is to say, hey, your little brainchild there, not good enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's almost everything I work on, I end up co-writing on yeah. because of that concept right there is the songs, if you don't have great songs, you're dead. Yeah. I mean... A great songs and a great drummer. Well, yeah, or me. Um, <laughs> but what I really learned from him was just that this this idea of like it's the producer's job to push the artist beyond whatever their idea of it is. Ultimately, whatever their the limitations of their talent or their vision. Well, yeah, and that's the classic thing of when you're younger, you have your first ten songs and you're like, okay, let's make a record. And if you saw behind the curtain of all the great stuff that... I'm, I'm right here. Right. <laughs> all the great <laughs> records you listened to over yeah. the years, you know, hundreds of songs were discarded before yeah. song one ever saw, yeah. you know, got recorded. Whole records get discarded so that yeah. you can get to the... But like to me, to see a producer like yourself or for someone to come in and be like, I got, I got 40 songs. Yeah. We're gonna, we might keep one of those, right? And right. that idea of like, let's make your best song. Let's make that the worst song on the record. Exactly. Like, like that thing about Thriller where they went through 800 songs or yeah. whatever it was. And these are all high level, 
pro-songwriters with hits. You know? <laughs> They're going through 800 of those, right? Another guy I want to talk about is Pierre Marchand. And he's famous for having done... Uh, Sarah McLaughlin. Sarah McLaughlin. He did Poses, Rufus Wainwright. Oh, right, like, right. And I had the honor of working with him. We did three songs with him, with Royal Wood years ago. Mm-hmm. And he... He taught me there's no blind alleys. So what do you mean when you say that? We would go down a rabbit hole. He was kind of like deliberately vague, huh. I think. Well, he was. He said he used to, he used to be kind of... More set in what he wanted. Yeah. But he mm-hmm. said he spent some time in India and, and like it really changed everything for him. So he ended up being more open to collaboration? Is that... Not even open to collaboration. It was just like giving you like almost like vague symbols, like sort of drawing it out of you as opposed to telling you what to do, but not drawing out a specific thing, leading you to your own truth, I guess. And, and do you think he knew where that was or he just had faith that he could somehow facilitate getting you there? Probably both. I mean, he's got another genius. Well, can you give me an example of like uh, something specific of how that would, because it, it seems kind of vague to me and I'm really curious just yeah. for my own. We had this, there was one song that we had demoed before that were part of those, uh, for part of another session. And we just, I don't know, he would be, yeah, can you do like a, and he would like wave his arms in a way and you, you'd be like, what, like, I can kind of. So he's miming the so, part for you to some degree? But it's very vague. Like it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like he would wave his arms. It wasn't like he played drums or whatever, but it would be some sort of representation of where you're going with it. And then you kind of had to figure it out. And I remember we spent four hours one day on this thing. And where we ended up was basically where we started, but with like two little notes changed. It was just sort of like more of an attitude thing. And then that was it. And then... And it was worth it. It was clear to everybody in the room that, oh, this has really improved, even though on the surface it might seem like a, a minor thing. Yeah, but it changed everything. So it was a thing where it was like, ah, okay. You know, time is money and you're thinking, but it's like, no, you gotta, you gotta be able to chase it. And then that's the greatest joy. Yeah. Isn't it? And just having the faith that you don't know where, what it is yet. No. Whether it's songwriting or getting the the vibe on a recording, but you, you got to trust that you can get there. Which is why we're all still here. (laughs) Yeah. I want to talk about your solo records a little bit. You're, you kind of like laugh, wince. Why, why is that? I, th- I threw them all out. <laughs> You're talking about literally the CDs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've thrown out boxes of CDs too. I, I threw them all out. The vibe of those records was so, I mean, you must have got lots of positive feedback. Like to me, it's such a kind of parallel to what you are as a drummer. It's like you have this ability to do something that feels classic and effortless and simple, but if you really take it apart, it's it's quite sophisticated. That's what those records were to me. Yeah, well, thank you, A. Um, it was the thing where you said, like, you get your first 10 songs. For me, it was, it was literally when I started singing, playing guitar, and right. writing, and I made a record. It takes a lot of balls, man. Uh, more stupidity. <laughs> so you regret doing them? I should have waited to make one mediocre record, one record of mediocre songs, or like of right. okay songs, as mm-hmm. opposed to three records of varying quality. 
I mean, it, I was very lucky. Like, everybody who worked on it was amazing. The reason mm-hmm. those records stand up is not the songwriting. It's it's because of I had, like, the most amazing musicians and involved in it. Those records, I think, also are an example of what I was saying earlier of the idea that musicians know the drummer is it in the band and you've got to have a great drummer. And also why drummers might get cranky is because everyone knows that and drummers are often the most accomplished musician in any group, meaning drummers almost always play another instrument, multiple other instruments, and you're an example of that. Your solo records showcase that someone who, who you know, doesn't know a lot about music might be surprised to know that, oh, here's this guy who's been playing drums for everybody and their brother over however many years and now does a solo record and he's a piano player and plays guitar and writes the songs and all of this. It's a song like Just a Dream, which is like a piano ballad. magic of that was Mayor Steinberg played piano on that. Oh, you didn't play piano, but you wrote it on piano, I imagine. I wrote it on piano, yeah. 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 I think I only played keys on one track on that record. But I mean, you teach piano, right? I did. I try not to let reality get in the way of me making a living sometimes. Always <laughs> oh, self-deprecating, man. Well, that horn arrangement on that tune. Who was that? Was that Bryden? That was improvised. I would point to Bryden mainly, but there was a thing where like, so we're talking about Brian Baird now. Oh, my God. He's, so, he's, he's done so many great things. Here's what happened with that tune. I envisioned a Memphis horns tenor trumpet thing. Simple. I didn't know what it was going to be. Him and my dear friend Gene Hardy, another brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So I get a call from them on the way to the studio. They're on the way to the studio, and they're like, we're listening to this. We think you should have a trombone. We're on our way. We're picking up Steve Donald. <laughs> <laughs> on their way. <laughs> Who's sick. But he agrees to come and do the session. So they show up, and then they end up, I don't know, they're just fooling around. And then at one point, there's like this staggered entrance thing that kind of happens. And I'm like, that? What is that? Mm-hmm. And so they figure it out, and then that becomes the... I've had that experience with Bryden Baird on a few sessions where he just comes in and improvises this this thing that you know he kind of builds over a few tracks that ends up being... Just magic again. Does I try it, to get him on every album yeah. I'm on because yeah, that's right. what he does. He just kind of brings the magic. It's like he just sprinkles fairy dust over everything on whatever instrument. Like, oh, I, you hire him for a trumpet part and it's just like, oh, I put this little B3 thing down. And, you know, the, and there'll be a little percussion thing here. Like, he just makes everything magic. He's one of the most magic human beings I've ever I, met. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about that was a big part of your life for many years was the Sinners Choir, which is a band that played live and it was multi-generational, right? Three generations. So we got to talk about that. What a fantastic band. What do you you have to say about that whole, I mean, to me, that was an example of chemistry between, so three generations, you've got uh, Adam Bircolicino, who was, what, is he in his 20s when you guys started? Yes. He just turned 30. And you, who were in your like early 40s. Mid. Well, yeah, I guess I was in my early 40s. When you guys started, yeah. and then Terry. Yeah, who would have been mid-60s. What What an interesting combination of fellas, to put it mildly. <laughs> Why is none of your music online? Uh, was that deliberate? Like, yes. Yeah, I thought so. I thought that's like, you got to come see us live. 
I try to minimize how much I take part in the own destruction of our industry. Right. Um, at one point, Terry was like, my son just told me about this thing, Spotify. And I was just like, uh, like, no, why put it out for free? Like our, our whole thing was to fly under the radar and not, not interface with the music industry in a way. Right. So, yeah, if you wanted a record, come see us. We'll sell you one. Yeah, it was a thing where it was just like, let's just not. Terry had been a rock star, you know, a few times over. Mm-hmm. I've been around the block. Um, so it was a thing like, no, let's not. Let's just like stay away from business stuff and just kind of play music and things just would come our way. Play music for people where people are interested. Yeah. You're not trying to push it up a hill, push the, the boulder up the hill. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a complicated thing in that I didn't want to travel at that point. Because you were just having a new family. Is that, or it was a little before that? Yeah, wasn't it was it? a little before that. But I was kind of like getting off the road. Mm-hmm. I did real estate for a couple of years. Right. Um, sort of got into that at the exact same time I kind of hooked up with those guys. And real estate sort of, I was still playing full time as well, but it sort of transitioned me back into town. So yeah, I wasn't eager to, after a couple of decades on the road, I was. You're like, I, I'm not traveling. It's not worth it. Well, yeah. Yeah, I had someone that fundamentally changed the direction of my life in some way. I remember talking to a few musician friends in a row who had done pretty high profile gigs, traveled around the world, and basically told me in no uncertain terms, for the money, yeah, it's not worth it because you're sacrificing so much of yourself, your time. It's just, it's not tenable unless you're, you know, playing in Tom Petty's band. And even then. I'm sure it's still a job. I mean, it's, yeah. You're only on stage for an hour or two a day. Yeah. And then what are you doing the other 22 hours? And it's all servicing someone else's vision. And so you don't get to take that with you necessarily, or you take less of it with you than if you were the front person. Yeah. I mean, I remember Peter Murray saying at one point, it's like, name somebody else who was in Wings that wasn't, last name wasn't McCartney. I mean, there's that aspect. That's not the aspect I think of. To me, it's that, that like being a musician is hurrying to get to the next place where you're going to wait an interminable amount of time in a small room with interrogation lighting and not enough chairs. Right. Like that's, that's what being a musician is. It's right. not, the music part is kind of like a... It's a little flash. It's a little yeah. flash in the middle of a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting, like hurrying to wait, you know, the hurry up and wait. But like, you know, like you have... We just had a sound check. We can go back to the hotel. But there's not quite enough time. We can go back to the hotel, but we're going to be there for 10 minutes, which is going to be more of a tease. It's going to take us 45 minutes to get there. And this is after a 10-hour travel day, probably. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we can go back to the hotel for 10 minutes, or we can wait here for an hour and 45. <laughs> you know? It's so classic, right? It's, it's like, no matter what you do, it happens every time. Music it becomes like a sort of like a side note to... Right. To what it is. So, like, now, being in town, like, I'm not opposed. I'm sh- I'll am end up on the road again at some point. Um, I guess I'm, I'm just kind of out of that ecosystem at this point. But right. I show up at a gig, like, depending on the gig, between 15 minutes and an hour before. Right. It's it's a totally different. You have some life where you can... Yeah. You're not held hostage by time, you know. I wanted to talk about another thing that I kind of admire you for. You're pretty outspoken on social media, but in a way that people yelling on Twitter is one thing, but you expressing a kind of nuanced idea and, and, and standing behind it. I forget what the one post was, but it was like, it had to do with Doug Ford 
It was election night. It was election, it was. and it was Doug Ford. And so for people who don't live in Ontario or in Canada, he's a super right-wing, kind of a Trump-type guy, like a buffoon who's doing a lot of harm to a lot of people. Anyway, you get the idea. And so you just took a stand and basically said, look, if you're supporting this, you're not my friend. Unfriend me. I thought that was pretty brave. And I thought that's different than just someone yelling out into the ether without any kind of point to it. It felt like you're taking responsibility in a way. Well, I think that would probably, being framed that way, sort of be an unpopular position in that people think, well, we need to build bridges and we need to, I don't know. I don't know that that's the the best way to go about it. But I also just, I just kind of wanted to be like, in my own anger and frustration, just being like, I think people still think politics is like sports teams, you know, and I think at one point, it, whether you're Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, NDP, there was sort of a nuanced differences right. between those two things. Mm-hmm. I think at this point in time, um, and you see like memes about this, uh, I'm not on social media very much just because I, I just get Yeah, me neither. It's the same thing, but I happened to see that and yeah. it hit me. But I think at this point, the teams are... Do you care about humanity? Do you not care about humanity? Yeah, I think that's well framed. Are you going to deny LGBTQ people rights? Are you going to deny people of color rights? Are you whatever? Or do you want things to be how they used to be in your imagination? Like, Yeah, do you want to minimize suffering? Yeah. Right. So at this point, people think, yeah, you do need to build bridges. But I, again, I'm not sure. That that bridge can be built? That's That's... A sobering thought. Horrific thought. The first thing I think about hearing you say that is I think about your son. I think about, you know, your family, your wife and your son. And if you feel that way, that's like, I mean, what can you do as a father when you live in a world like this? I guess that that was part of your frustration, right? Like here I am with a new young son and this is the world I'm living in. Yeah, I think it's a difficult time to be alive regardless. But having a child and having a young child just amplifies that to the nth degree. Because like, yeah, okay, the world's burning. We're all going to die. Great. But I got to watch my son yeah, yeah, contend yeah. with this. Yeah. You know, and what is his inheritance going to be? In the case of that election was just like, you had one side being like, yes, we've paid a fortune in daycare or whatever, but free daycare or free dental care. Or we have these strategies to make your life easier. And then on the other side, you have indignant anger and buck a beer. So my frustration, and I'm extra triggered by this because of my childhood and growing up in a small-minded area, small Mm -hmm. town, is that I don't know how to build a bridge. I should because I've lived in both those scenarios. But I don't, when I see the intellectual origami that people are committing to like somehow blame all this stuff on Kathleen Wynne or Obama or whoever, you know what I mean? Like, Like, I don't know what to do with that. And again, it comes back to the Dunning-Kruger effect or like any sort of cognitive bias or... um... Yeah, the thing that always comes up for me is Scandinavia. (laughs) It's like they've been doing things right, you know, high taxes, big social net, Mm -hmm. but quality of life is number one in the world, always by all the measures you would want to measure things by. And, you know, prohibition doesn't work, all of this stuff, and... It's not as if they're on an, another planet. It's the data's all there. Mm-hmm. And you see what works, yet people make these arguments as though it's never been tested. Did I ever tell you this story? My brother-in-law 
is a doctor. Uh-huh. He was at Harvard when the Obamacare thing was being debated or whatever. Right. And he would go to town halls and they refused to even look at the Canadian model, let, <laughs> let alone the Scandinavian model. But they wouldn't even, they were just like, no, we're America, exceptionalism, we're... Talk about it's just fighting against your own best interests and that the bottom underlying thought seems to be, well, then maybe I won't get rich because, you know, I've got this lottery ticket. I'm American. And if there's health care for everyone, maybe I won't be a millionaire. Yep. I think we had that as Canadians superficially, mm-hmm. or white Canadians had that superficially yeah, for yeah. other white Canadians for for a while. But that's not, uh, to put a more nuanced point on it. Um <laughs> But I don't think, I think people are getting played. Like, I look at the Toronto Sun, mm-hmm. right? Any conservative movement. You have the really rich people, mm-hmm. and then you have the dumb people, right? That's your constituency. And you have these people playing these people against their own self-interest, and people don't, people don't get it. So, as a father, can you put your finger on how has that changed you as a musician, as a human being? It might be a ridiculous question because it, it might be such a laundry list of things in your life. I mean, everything changes, right? Everything. So how would you describe the change? I mean, the main thing is just it's not about you. Is that liberating? Mm, hmm. I don't know. I don't know how much time I've had even had to think through a lot of these things. It just it adds to the responsibility or the responsibility changes. Right. And it makes everything more real and more... I mean, going back to what we put ourselves through being touring musicians or being musicians, right. period. Like, sure, I can hurt myself. Does it make decisions easier for you? Has it? Because um, I sort of romanticize that in some way that, well, now I've got this compass. I know why I'm doing stuff. Any decision, you've got this. I'm kind of leading you, but I, I don't yeah. know what, what your experience is. Uh, no, I don't. it doesn't make anything easier. It certainly complicates everything because you're still, you're still you and you still have needs and wants and stuff too so i think it just kind of adds there's this whole other layer that you have to think about and it's more important than you know right. your, your needs are met or whatever so i wanted to kind of wrap things up with a bit of a final thought you've dedicated your whole life to this point essentially to music you've been tireless you've done all everything we've been talked t- about been tired <laughs> you've been tired <laughs> so w- what do you think is important about music especially in the context of what we've been talking about, about the industry and about what you said about the Sinner's Choir and about, you know, not wanting to support certain aspects of it, but just music itself. Wow. Um, it's a weird thing because it's sort of what we do is has no value in the marketplace or even to most people, but I think it's also the most valuable thing. Isn't that true? Because it's such a part of the fabric of people's lives. Yeah. And I mean, not just musicians, I think everybody, like music helps you get through the day, helps you deal with stuff, empowers you, inspires you, all these different things, you know. A friend of mine was down in New Orleans years ago, and she was sort of getting hit on by this older man. And uh, something about like, like, oh, I'm married. It's like, oh, what does your husband do? It's like, he's a drummer. It's like, it's like, oh, he didn't tell me he does God's work, you know. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's how I feel. Yeah. And kind of. To me, it's a real struggle because sometimes I think, well, why am I still here? Am I still here? (laughs) There's that when things are slow. Right. You know, and for me, I'm in this position now where the sinners have run their course and I don't know what's next for me. 
Right. And I'm doing a master's degree, so I don't really have time to be out hustling, getting things done, or even thinking about what's next for me. But you still got to make a living. Somehow. So uh, I need to figure some stuff out. So there's that aspect. But then, like, again, like, it does have value. What we, songs certainly have value. Like, I don't know if I ever told you the story. I was playing a magical friend of mine who passed away a few years ago. I was singing at this thing that was a tribute to her. Acoustic Harvest did this thing. And so, you know, it was like a bunch of like awesome top folk musicians and me got up and everybody sang one of her tunes and then sang one of their tunes, one of their own songs. And at the end of the night, this woman came up to me and she, she said, I haven't wanted to live, but after hearing your song, I want to live. And I was just like, wow, that says it all. That, that really. So that's what it can do. That's the bottom line. I mean, I just got chills. Yeah. That's certainly the greatest gift anybody could ever give to me. Say something like that. That makes it all worthwhile. I mean, that's that's good enough for me. I think we can end there because that's, <laughs> I mean, musicians have these discussions constantly. It's this grind. It's like, how are we going to get through all of it? And then you hear something like that and you go, oh, yeah, right. That's why we're doing this. Yeah. You need to be reminded. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for being so honest and for, for coming here to talk to me. Is there anywhere you want people to find you online? Is that, is that important? No. <laughs> Shaking his head. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. All right. Adam Warner. I love it. I learned so much. I know I say that constantly, but that's just the overwhelming feeling I have as I'm doing these. Like for instance, no matter what compliment I give Adam, he almost invariably gives another musician the credit. He wants to shine the light on someone else. It's like he's the ultimate team player. I've noticed this with musicians that have made their living as hired guns. The best of them all do that. And it's funny because on the surface, you might think they would tend to be more mercenary and competitive, but that's not the case at all. It's the opposite. And Adam is such a great example of that. I love that. So as always, we've got the clips we played in their entirety on a Spotify playlist. You can get that in the show notes. You can get links to Adam online in the show notes and email me and sometimes whypod at gmail.com. Make some suggestions. It'll make the show better. I mean, I don't know what you guys think. I can't guess. I really appreciate that. More music, less music. There's going to be a lot more variety, I think, in the guests in the next little while. I'm excited about it. And please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you haven't done it already, take a moment to rate the podcast if you like it and leave a review because it really helps spread the word. And I know that might not seem that important, but in order to keep this thing going, it is. Trust me. So sincerely, thank you so much for giving a shit. Talk to you next Wednesday. And Sometimes Why is brought to you by Rob Sabo. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald.